This morning we'll be reading Paul's letter to the followers of Jesus in Philippi, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. My son is really into studying survival techniques. I don't know what his intrigue is, but he's fascinated by it. It reminds me of him when I see that video, that lead-up video. Basically, what he's saying is, in effect, if I'm going to survive out there in the wilderness, what are the essentials? What, what are just the basic things that I must have in order to have life? He doesn't have a lot of experience in survival. He did climb to the top of Mount Whitney. I guess that's a survival technique. But it's an interesting image, isn't it? What are the essentials for life itself? So we're going to do a four-part series on what we just called the essentials, just the essentials. And those essentials are going to be broken down into four things. Not that there couldn't be others, but we've chosen four things. The first one is today, the cross of Christ. The second one is the authority of Scripture. The third one is sharing the good news. And the fourth one is living the gospel. Now, you might listen to those descriptions that I just gave, or titles, and think, essentials for what? Well, you could say those are the essentials of the evangelical faith. That would be true. You might also say those are the essentials for an orthodox faith, and that would be true. Or you might just say those are the essentials for Christianity, the Christian faith. You need to at least focus on those four things. Before I start this sermon, I want to remind you of something. 
The last time I preached was on Easter, and I preached a 10-minute sermon. I just want you to remember that. That's all I'm saying. I did it one time. No promises today. What are the essentials of the cross? I use, as you might expect, three words. The first word is sacrifice. The second word is glorification. And the third word is restoration. Why sacrifice as an essential to understand the cross? Because when you take a look at the biblical story, you see from the very beginning a sacrificial system. And in that sacrificial system, people offered things, sometimes grain offerings, sometimes goats or bulls or, or lambs, but it was a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that was made to God. And into that Old Testament history comes Jesus. And into that Old Testament history, Jesus identifies as the Lamb of God. And in reflection on the New Testament reality of Jesus, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, here it is. Here is the picture of sacrifice. The sacrifice that we think of involved suffering on the cross. As a matter of fact, unimaginable pain and suffering. Hardly a worse way to die than to suffer on the cross. It was painful, agonizing, psychologically, physically, and it was long. It didn't just happen. Sometimes it went on for days before the one who was on the cross finally died. There were all kinds of things happening in a crucifixion, but basically what was happening is inch by inch, minute by minute, your life was being drained from your body. Organs were shutting down. Blood was gone. The difficulty of breath was unspeakable. The pain was horrific. So when we think of the cross and sacrifice, we rightly remember that. But there's another sacrifice or suffering in sacrifice on the cross. It was the weight of sin. Jesus knew no sin. He was one with God the Father, second person of the Trinity. And now as he hung on that cross for the first time, all the weight of sin was upon his shoulders. Now, frequently in our tradition, we focus on the personal relationship with Jesus. I think it's a powerful element of our evangelical emphasis. And we speak about Jesus bearing our sins on the tree, and that's true. But my friends, there's so much more. On the cross, on that day of crucifixion, he didn't just take Bob's sins and your sins. He took the weight of all sin, of the whole history of the world upon himself. Why did he do it? Why did he suffer such agony? Because the suffering and the agony that was on the cross was for the purpose of redemption. Redemption. 
And he could not redeem all things in God's plan without taking the sin of all things upon himself. So we think of this sacrifice, we think of suffering, we think of physical suffering, we think of the emotional weight of sin, and we think of, quite frankly, separation from God the Father. The suffering included being separated by sin from God the Father in a way that had never happened before. But there's another part to the suffering. Not just the historical resurrection. If you were listening to the reading this morning in Philippians chapter 3, you know there's a contemporary connection to the suffering. Paul says, reflecting on the Christ, I, uh, the cross of Christ, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, finish it for me, of sharing in his suffering. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says the suffering of Jesus was not just a historical reality. The suffering of Jesus was something as a believer that I actually am called to enter into. I enter into his suffering. I walk, I take up my cross and follow him. And in that suffering, I find completeness. So the cross reflects a sacrifice of suffering. But the sacrifice is not just suffering. It's a demonstration of perfection. Because there was suffering in other sacrificial systems. But as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats, it was not sufficient. It was not perfect. It was not lasting. You had to repeat it over and over again in the sacrificial system. And now, says the writer of the book of Hebrews, this suffering and this sacrifice and this demonstration of love is once for all. It's complete and it's perfect and it never ends. So the sacrifice is suffering. It's a demonstration of perfection. And it's a demonstration of love. I remind you of two verses I'm sure you've heard. Romans chapter 5. Verse 8, Paul says, but God demonstrated his love towards us. How? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't say while we were repentant sinners, does he? He doesn't say while we were sorrowful for our sins, does he? He says, while we were still sinners. While we were thoroughly enmeshed in our own self-centeredness, our own turned inwardness, our own wickedness, our own lack of desire to be one with God, while we were still sinners in that condition, Christ died for us. That is the demonstration of love, says Paul. And in John's epistle, he puts it, in a similar way. He said, love is not that we love God. We define everything from our point of view, don't we? Love is not that we love God. Love is that God loved us. That's the definition of love. And gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
So you've got suffering in this sacrifice. You also have perfection in this sacrifice. And in this sacrifice, third, you have the demonstration of love, divine love. I know I've used more than three words already, but the second major word that I want to refer you to is glorification. The cross was and is the glory of God. How in the world could the cross be the glory of God? The first reason it could be the glory of God, I, I sound like a, a parent with my children at home, is because God said so, right? <laughs> no, but seriously, not to be coy, the reason it's the glory of God is because God chose it. God chose it as his instrument. God chose it as his mission to accomplish his will. And when God chooses anything, anything to accomplish his will, it's an expression of his glory. Do you know how many times I have struggled in my life thinking that God can glorify himself through me? Have you? If you're normal, you have. You don't feel worthy. You don't feel like you have what it takes. But God chose you to glorify himself in this present world. And God chose the instrument of the cross, a symbol of execution and horror and death. He chose that to glorify himself. He chose it. That's why it's God's glory. But there's a second reason that the cross is God's glory. Because the cross pronounces victory. The cross takes the actual elements that destroy human life. The cross takes everything that symbolized hatred and wickedness and suffering. The cross took all of that in the hands of Jesus. And it said, I am going to use the cross. I'm going to use the symbol of death. I'm going to use a bleeding execution to demonstrate life that's eternal. That's why the cross is God's glory. He took it and turned it upside down. He took it and revolutionized it. That's why it's his glory. The cross is sacrifice. The cross is glorification. But the cross is also restoration. When Christ was raised, he pronounced victory over death. But he didn't just pronounce victory over death for himself. He pronounced victory over death for all those who believe. The transference of the power of the resurrection of God in Christ is ours. That is amazing. In 1 Corinthians, 
Second, uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the resurrection. And he makes something unequivocally clear. That Christ was bodily raised from the dead. Now you say, Bob, why do you even say it? We all know it. I know you do. But I have to say it. Because we have to repeat the truth of it. And I have to say it. Because as Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I've got to reinforce this. You need to guard yourself, said he repeatedly, against false teaching concerning a variety of things, but especially the cross and the resurrection. And there is false teaching, my friends, even among Christian churches that says the cross of Jesus Christ was a symbol of God's divine love. How wonderful is that? I agree that the cross of Jesus Christ showed how much God loved people and that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a spiritual reality that lifts the soul but is not a physical reality that's embedded in history. If you have not heard that, I tell you, my friends, it's true. There are people claiming to follow Christ who would describe the cross and the resurrection that way. Instead of me saying what Paul would say, let me read you his words. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Just shut it down. Close the door. Put a cork in it. And so is your faith. As a matter of fact, you get it later, it says you're pitiful if Christ hasn't been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead will never be raised. But Christ has indeed been raised. Let me put it another way. Paul says, if you don't have the resurrection, you don't have anything. All you've got is platitude and a faith that is empty. Why is the cross so central? There is no Christianity, there is no life apart from the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's at the core of who we are. Isn't it interesting that the powerful spiritual reality of the resurrection cannot be found unless it emerges from the real historical physical resurrection, 
That is where the spiritual power of the resurrection comes from. Not by some mythic idea, but from the reality that Christ was raised. This powerful historical reality becomes a spiritual reality. The restoration of the people of God. Paul speaks about numerous times. One of the places he speaks about that is in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 19, but especially verse 19. God was in Christ, Paul says, reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ bringing the world to himself, which had been separated by sin. In Colossians, beginning in verse 15 and running through verse 20, you hear these words. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were made, and in him all things hold together. And he was reconciling the world to himself. Through what? The blood of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ. That is so beautifully personal. In both those passages and in many, many more, it is so beautifully personal. You're redeemed by the blood of Christ. Your name, written in the Lamb's book of life, because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I tell you, that's at the heart of the power of the evangelical faith. But you know what can happen, right? We can focus on one thing and forget the other. So if you're looking at Romans chapter 8, it begins with Paul saying, There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And he goes on and waxes eloquent about life in the Spirit, about the existential personal reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is wonderful. It is beautiful. But don't forget this. Near the end of that same passage, he says this. I consider that our present sufferings, he knew about those, are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For creation itself waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subject by frustra to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that right now the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. What is that all about? 
Here's what it's all about. He's just been talking about a personal relationship with God and the Holy Spirit because of the power of the resurrection. And then he shifts gears and he says, I want to remind you of something. This resurrection thing we're talking about is just not a historical reality. It's not just a personal reality between you and God. This thing called the resurrection, the cross of Christ, it is the restoration of everything. The whole universe, everything will be made new. Everything will be brought back to the way it's supposed to be recreated shall we say because of the cross of Jesus Christ it's not just about us it's about the whole world the physical world which is in travail right now God's going to redeem restore the whole thing that's why restoration is a key element to the message of the cross. I like to link Romans chapter 8 with the end of Revelation 20 and 21 where God, through the author John, says, I want to tell you the end of the story. One of these days, heaven's going to come down to earth. There's going to be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth and I'm going to make everything new. That happened because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of the cross of Christ. So a flurry of comments at the end for my conclusion. A couple of things that the cross is not. A couple of things that the cross is not. The cross is not one option among many. The cross is not just a demonstration of one of the things that God did. The cross is not a demonstration of how God chose to do it, and so we decide that's the best one. The cross is not just a demonstration of anything except this. It is the way God chose, and for that reason, it's the only way. God chose the cross to redeem the world. It wasn't one of many options. The second thing the cross is not. The cross is not just one of many love expressions. You hear this a lot. Oh, isn't that a wonderful demonstration of love? But there's another one that's just as good. Let me give you, no, no, no. It is the definition of love. It is the highest demonstration of love. The cross of Christ is the pinnacle of love. It's not one of the many options that demonstrates love. The third thing it is not. It's not just a story of a martyr who died for his cause. We got lots of martyrs who died for a lot of great causes, and I applaud them. That is not the story, my friends. Yes, of course Christ was a martyr, insofar as he died for his mission. But that's not the point. It's not martyrdom. It's not a good man dying just so he could achieve an objective to advance his cause that's not what this is. That's not what this is. 
There's all kinds of equivalency to that in the entire universe. There is no equivalency to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's more than martyrdom. If we leave it there, we've lost its power. So what is it? It's absolutely necessary. Salvation. It is God who created this whole thing. And it is God who restores this whole thing. And only God can create. And only God can fully restore. And God decided to fully restore all things through the cross. It's an absolute necessity. It's not an option. The second thing that the cross is. It's the ultimate expression of grace. The ultimate expression of grace. Everything should be measured against it. The unmerited favor of God towards sinners. There's nothing like it. The third thing it is. It's for everyone. Remember the book of Acts? This was a stunning reality to Peter. This gospel message of the cross is for the whole world. We kind of yawn at that now. But let's remember this. The whole world is full of murderers and thieves and all kinds of thugs and people who do awful things. Did you know the cross is for them? And if we should forget that, let's just forget the three crosses that we saw on Calvary. Those who were beside him, who deserved, as the repentant thief said, deserved death. It was that thief for whom Christ died. Not just the disciples who had been following. He died for all No one is outside the reach of the cross. The fourth thing that the cross is, it's the only hope for the world. There's no other promise like this. There is no other God who entered human history and pronounced victory over death the way God and Jesus Christ did and promised to restore all things. There's no story like that. It's the only hope for the world. Final thing. Title of my sermon, actually. It's the center of life. It's the cosmic center of life. Whether you believe it or not, in Him, the resurrected Lord, all things hold together. In Him, the resurrected Lord, you have the breath in your lungs. In Him, the resurrected Lord, this world goes round and round. In Him, the resurrected Lord, everything exists. That's a cosmic reality. It's a fact whether you believe it or not. But here's the second thing about the cross being the center of life. The cross is the center of life, not just cosmically, but personally. And for the first, it's true 
whether you believe it or not. But for the second, a choice is required. If it's the center of your life, you have chosen Christ. And in Him is life abundant, free, and eternal. It's not automatic, my friend. He must be chosen in order to have fullness of life. So the question, have you chosen him? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the truth of your word, and in particular the message of the cross, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We thank you for the hope of eternal salvation. We thank you for the life that you infuse into our veins as we walk this earth. And we pray, Lord, that you will remind us that you are the center of life. And also, Lord, we pray that today someone will bow the knee before the cross, the center of life restored and will confess you as their Lord and come to know the power of the cross in their life. And Lord, if, if that happens today for someone, it'll be the greatest day of their life and you'll transform them by your grace. We pray these things will happen in the name of Christ, our powerful, risen Lord. Amen.